0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and all the intersectional struggles of the moment. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we cannot get off our minds. And today you've got me, Nicole Lewis, Senior Editor of Jurisprudence at Slate.
1: And me, Susan Matthews. I'm Slate's Executive Editor, and I recently finished hosting Season 7 of our podcast Slow Burn, which this season is all about the lead-up to Roe v. Wade and how that case was decided in the first place.
0: And today we're talking about how the media is doing covering our post-Roe landscape. For months before the SCOTUS decision, in the case that overturned the constitutional right to an abortion, the jurist team and I had been talking about what our post-Roe reality would look like. We knew overturning Roe wouldn't simply catapult us back to the 1970s. The abortion movement has changed. Their rhetoric and their goals have changed. So we knew this moment was going to be both different and much worse. And so I can't stop thinking about a news story from last week that seemed to encapsulate this new horrific reality. It's about a 10-year-old girl who had been raped and impregnated and eventually had to leave her home state of Ohio to access an abortion. We're going to talk about that story in more detail and how it went completely awry after the break. But first, Susan, why did you want to talk about this?
1: I had been waiting for this moment for a long time and thinking quite a bit about how it would be similar to what came before, but also most specifically how it would be different. And I think that when you just said how it would be different and how it would be worse, that really hits on something that um, I kind of knew going into this. But over the past few weeks, I have just been struck again and again and again by like how specifically awful this feels and Beyond that, like, not just how awful it feels, but like, it is really different than how abortion was talked about before Roe. And as somebody who has just spent the last several months, like really marinating in that time period and that discourse and that conversation, I'm really surprised almost like I felt like I should have been one of the best situated people to kind of understand what this was going to feel like and I just don't think that I knew and I feel like I've just been inundated by these absolutely horrific stories. I really have been thinking about like how do we wade through these? How do we talk about them well? How do we how do we do any of this? So, I've been thinking about that a lot. I've been thinking about it as a person who exists in the world, but I've also specifically been thinking about it as a member of the media. That has really been what I've been thinking about and what I am so excited to talk to you about.
0: We'll unpack this whole awful story and we'll talk about what we lose when we talk about abortion as strictly a political issue instead of the really basic and sometimes life-saving healthcare that it is. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes too, like last week's about Brittany Griner and the perils of playing for the WNBA. A few weeks ago, the Indianapolis Star reported that a doctor performed an abortion on a 10-year-old Ohio girl who'd been raped and impregnated. President Biden then mentioned this anecdote as an example of the fallout of ending Roe. This girl had to leave her state, it seems, because the family thought she could not get an abortion in Ohio. Just
1: last week, it was reported that a 10-year-old girl was a rape victim in Ohio, 10 years old. And she was forced to have to travel out of the state to Indiana to seek to terminate the presidency and maybe save her
0: life. That's the last part is my judgment. Ten years old. Ten years old. raped, six weeks pregnant. Already traumatized. Was forced to travel to another state. Imagine being that little girl. Just, I'm, I'm serious. Just imagine being that little girl. Ten years old. So if... All this wasn't bad enough. Things got so much worse from there. So Susan, you wrote about this case. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened next?
1: Yeah, as if that isn't already awful enough. So what happened is is that this story was really used as an anecdote in like a local news piece. But the issue is is that you know President Biden talked about it, and as soon as President Biden talked about it, I felt like it then you know, catapulted this story into just a much broader national lens. And what happened when when it went national is basically that Tons of people who did not have any intimate knowledge of the story itself decided that it wasn't possible that it could have happened. That it was so shocking that it was it was almost unreliable. And so what you saw was several media outlets who started questioning the veracity of this reporting. Uh, the Wall Street Journal called it an abortion story too good to confirm when it was confirmed later, which it was a few weeks after they wrote that, or I think actually even just a few days after they wrote that. It was confirmed they put an update on the piece and they like kind of issued an apology but they also said like oh the the political uh landscape is so charged that we have to be really careful with stories like this and i just really felt like you're the ones who turned this into a political football and not to be outdone fox news pundit said the story was a hoax designed to politicize an already deeply political issue here's host jesse waters
0: so where do we stand If there's a 10 year old child abuser out there on the streets of Ohio, he needs to be brought to justice. And if so-called doctors are covering up child rape, they need to be prosecuted. But if this horrific story isn't accurate and the abortion doctor and the Indianapolis Star are misleading us and the mainstream media and the president of the United States seizing on another hoax, then this is absolutely shameful and fits a pretty dangerous pattern of politically timed disinformation.
1: The first thing that I thought about when I heard about this case was just this awful feeling of something that felt true or felt very likely to be true, and the way it gets just kind of ingested into this world that we live in now, where like facts that we don't like, we can just kind of call fake news and put to the side. Um, and I just thought it was really fascinating to see in particular, cause you kind of expect that from certain actors, but in particular with like the Washington Post fact checker column and the Wall Street Journal, what I thought was really disturbing is that they were doubting the story publicly, like in print, without having any actual confirmed reason to doubt it, like besides their own intuition. I found that to be such bizarre behavior because I can totally understand reading that story and feeling horrified by it and feeling like, oh, my God, I can't believe that this is happening. But unless you actually have evidence that you don't think that it actually happened,
0: I cannot believe printing a column casting doubt on that. I'm shaking my head and just thinking about is that there's no coincidence that many of these columns were written by men and that there's something that sort of suggests that like, you know, if you're not thinking every day or not having to face or deal with the reality of just how much sexual assault and abuse happens to women and girls, that your mind just says, well, this is too outlandish. There's no way this is possible. But, but for so many of us we kind of know, well, no, actually, we know many young women who were abused. And, you know, we sort of say, this is horrible, but fully within the realm of possibility. And so I think that that's what really struck me, that men sort of leaped on and said, no way, no how, let me do some work. And, and you know, really didn't provide much new additional context, right? Just said, like all things dealing with the criminal justice system, it's hard to kind of pin stuff down, right? Weeks later, we found out that there was a man who was arrested and arraigned, right? And so that sort of puts a pin in all of this. Um, But that was my first thought.
1: In particular, there was this kind of like faux outrage or faux pretending to really care about women in the positioning of like, well, if a 10 year old was raped and pregnant, like, where is the rapist? Like, why hasn't the rapist been prosecuted? That I think is so typical of these cases um, where when something terrible has happened, like the emphasis on finding the bad guy and punishing the bad guy feels really, really extreme. And in this case in particular, it's like, first of all, women are and girls are navigating this new landscape where they have to catch their pregnancies early and get care as quickly as possible, or they might not be able to get it. I think that this 10 year old was six weeks and three days pregnant when she was told to leave the state. So there was like an element of time and a need to focus on the victim of the crime that felt so obvious to me. The pretend outrage of like, well, if this really happened, we need to prosecute the rapist felt like it also was so completely not acknowledging anything that we've learned about how the crime of rape happens, what it means to prosecute it, whether that could put the girl at further risk. Like there are just so many things around our failures with that that felt really depressing to
0: me there was no real reason to go looking and and trying to unpack or verify uh, this story. The star quoted and had interviewed the doctor who performed this abortion, right? So we so we have a really clear source, right? And so it, again, sort of says all these people came together to say, well, this clearly this female doctor is also lying, you know, she's going out of her way to make something so sensational and political. And I just think we see that impulse in lots of other arenas that are connected to the issue of abortion. So it, it really landed on me in the same way that people talk about women coming forward, about cases of. Sexual assault to say these women are lying. There's no way they're telling the truth. And I just step back and think, you know, what good would it do long term? What fun would people have by coming forward and saying, you know, I was sexually assaulted or I performed an abortion on a 10-year-old, out of just making it up, right? That that just doesn't, I don't want to fully put it out of the realm of possibility, but what we know is that it's really not how people operate. It's not how these cases happen. Um, And so it just, you know, the echoes were to the Me Too were so loud here. One thing
1: that felt really problematic to me was the attribution of a motive to lie to that doctor. Like many people said, she's an activist on this matter. And I think that that really, to me, loops into something that I just wanted to talk to you about, about this idea of like, who gets to be an activist and who gets to be somebody who just has a deeply held belief like I think that that's something between the two sides that like one side really has a monopoly on saying like well this is my religious belief whereas you actually have a person whose job it is to provide care to these people saying this is something horrible that I've seen and you need to know about it and we're like oh we're gonna find a reason to not
0: believe you. I mean, that's such a huge tension, Susan. It's something that comes up for us, right, as journalists all the time when you're reporting on something and you're taking a particular view or stance or perspective, right, That so you know the way that people try to discredit you and say that you're biased this is activism when it comes to an issue like abortion when we're talking about something that again like I alluded to in the beginning is 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 potentially life-saving healthcare right that that doesn't feel particularly political to me it feels like Doctors know how to care for people with uteruses, and sometimes things go awry, right? Even the best-intended, well-planned pregnancies may end in a miscarriage where the treatment is uh, similar to an abortion, is an abortion, right, is removing the contents of that uterus. So I just think when I break it down that way, when I really step back— I say to myself, you know, then doctors talking about what they do in a very routine way, day after day, that they were doing before the end of row, that they will continue to do in the, you know, months and years ahead, are just doing their job. And they're coming forward telling us now about how. The, the political space, right, <laughs> the Supreme Court has made their jobs more difficult. And and what's at risk now, right? The potential loss of life, the potential harm, all of the stories that we hear about women who are turned away from the ER and sent home to miscarry on their own, you know, to be in pain when they don't need to be, to risk sepsis when they don't need to risk that, right? These doctors are just kind of telling us how we've imperiled a life-saving tool. So when I step back, I think, how dare you? How can you call these people activists right They're We've just made their job harder. And that seems really unfair that when they stand up to, to tell us that, that we're trying to shut them down. In the era
1: before Roe, one of the things that struck me when I was researching the season of Slow Burn, like the very first thing that I learned where I was like, huh, this must have made things very different, is that Abortion was a political issue, obviously, but it wasn't a partisan issue at all. Uh, more Republicans than Democrats supported abortion rights, but it was like really quite mixed. Also, just for the record, it was quite consistent. The level of Americans who supported abortion access then as to now has always been in like the high 60s. So most people want abortion access. We're, we're living under a minority uh, choice here. But the other thing is that when it's when it's not partisan in this way, Like the landscape was a lot different. And so, when I was thinking about what's going to happen now, the rabid partisanship attached to the laws that intentionally criminalize the act have created just a totally different landscape. And that's what we're living through. Right now, And we have to talk about this example where there's this clip that we have of Representative Eric Swalwell. He's at a House Judiciary Committee hearing, and he's talking to the leader of a national anti-abortion organization. And what transpires is just, I, we're going to have to talk about it. I don't even know what to say. Here is the clip. Justified. Focus on the question, please. Would a 10-year-old choose to carry a baby? Um, I, I, I cannot. Do you think a 10-year-old should choose to carry a baby? I believe it would probably impact her her life and so therefore it would fall under any exception and would not be an abortion wait it would not be an abortion if a 10 year old with her parents made the decision not to have a baby that was the result of a rape if a 10 year old became pregnant as a result of rape and it was uh, threatening her life then that's not an abortion so
0: it would not fall under any abortion restriction in our nation.
1: Ms. Warbelow, um, are you familiar with disinformation?
0: One of the things that just there that really stands out for me is you could hear Eric Solwell, you could hear just the, how stunned he is to hear this woman say, in this case, it would not be an abortion. And Susan, I'm wondering if you can just uh, unpack this a little bit more for us. Right
1: now, what the right is faced with is the horrific costs of outlying abortion in the way that they have told their followers forever and forever and forever, this is necessary in order to be just like, we need to do this. So now they've done it and now they're dealing with the reality of it. And the reality of it is that 10 year olds who are raped will, uh, I guess, be told that they ought to carry pregnancies to term, which like the president of the National Right to Life uh, organization said, okay, it would actually be more harmful to her to for her to have an abortion, which is just its own thing. But in this clip specifically, I just want to note that like, there's this extreme pathology around saying that abortion is one thing and it's a political act that is wrong and like discounting it from the healthcare act that it actually is. That is just like the definition of an abortion is ending a pregnancy. This 10 year old was pregnant the pregnancy was ended, it was an abortion and they can't handle it because they can't really handle the repercussions of that for what their policies are. The Ohio law does not have exceptions for rape or incest. So there was some back and forth of like, would she be punished for getting an abortion in Ohio or not? But nobody could agree to such a state that it would be like risk free for her to do it there. So these are the laws that they have decided we all have to live under and then they can't actually handle the consequences of it and to me one of our colleagues said this and I thought that it was such a smart way of thinking about it we know for a fact that women who oppose abortion still get abortions themselves but I think that there's a deep psychology there where they say my abortion was different this isn't an abortion it's not an abortion I just really need to not be pregnant and they can't really in just that idea themselves. And I think that this is just an exact example of this is what outlawing abortion means. And so, in order to deal with it, they have to say, that's not actually an abortion. My law is still
0: okay. Incredible. I mean, it's just some real mental gymnastics happening. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think Eric Solo was right to say, you know, to ask her, are you familiar with the term disinformation, right? That once these ideas start to leave their little bubble in their space and become part of the public, we find new ways to kind of justify exactly what you're saying, justify why some people should be, have, still have access, why some people should not, you know, who can follow along really in this case. There's so much more we could say about this story, but we're gonna take a break here. But if you wanna hear more from Susan and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment Is This Feminist?, where today we are debating whether or not wishing Kamala Harris was not so very publicly our VP right now is feminist.
1: And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like Amicus, Slate Money, and of course, this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash Plus. Welcome back to The Waves. We've been talking about how the media totally botched the story of the 10-year-old who needed an abortion. But I wanted to also talk about a few other examples of how the media generally has approached this topic. Uh, The media is obviously a really big word that means a lot of different things. So I think I just want to clarify by saying that I... What I really wanted to talk about here is a few pieces from the New York Times about how they've been covering the story. I felt in particular leading up to, and I think really immediately after the Dobbs decision, there were a bunch of stories that, like, reported very earnestly on the pro life side of things, uh, or co- specifically commissioned people who identify as pro life to write pieces. And the one that I really wanted to talk about was an op-ed that was about a woman who experienced an ectopic pregnancy. The headline of the piece was, in a post row world, we can avoid pitting mothers against babies. And from there, the rest of the piece, I just kind of felt like it was a really bizarre essay because on the one hand, I had so much empathy for the author and what she had gone through. Like she went through an ectopic pregnancy, which is a pregnancy that is not viable. Like you basically need to get Abortion. I mean, again, what is an abortion? How do we use that word? She had had this procedure before and she really felt that she hadn't gotten care that was like responsive to all of her emotional needs in this moment. It was a wanted pregnancy. And so I think that she was experiencing a lot of emotion and it seemed clear to me that she hadn't received adequate response from, um, you know, the healthcare community for that need. And so she wrote about going to a Catholic hospital and going to a place where like everyone believes that life starts at conception and this is a life and we have to treat it this way. And so on the one hand, I felt like, okay, I understand where this person is coming from. But on the other hand, it felt like such an encapsulation to me of, I, I very much believe that she experienced a true harm. I believe that that harm can and should be corrected. And I felt like instead the result of having gone through that experience is that she was kind of saying, Everyone needs to exist in the world as I do. And to me, that is one of the real um, hallmarks of this like pro life philosophy of like, this is my religious belief, this is my belief. And so everyone needs to experience the world as I do is something that I have been thinking about a lot. But Nicole, what did you think of that ectopic pregnancy op ed?
0: There is just so much to say here, right? So let me read a sentence that I think stood out to me and it is this it says a previous surgeon had told me to stop crying during a miscarriage and then she says so you know this is why she went to this catholic hospital and goes on we wanted a surgeon who took the loss of our child as seriously as the danger to my life and so i i think if if i want to start by being the most generous the most empathetic i do understand what this woman is saying at a very high level right that most of the time, often in many ways, all of the medical care that we receive is not very comforting and not necessarily super compassionate. Um, that doctors see things as procedures. They have only but so much time. You know, procedures are thought of as like billing codes and line items, right? That that, that certainly we can all agree that there is an aspect of our medical care Um, Especially in those intimate spaces where people maybe don't actually feel very well taken care of, and so I understand if that's the essay you want to write, fantastic, right? We can all kind of get on board there. Where this essay really veers off track for me is is trafficking and and what I would call misinformation, right? That talking about delivering ectopic pregnancies calling ectopic pregnancies babies. And I think I know that this is a line where, you know, obviously there are people who believe that life begins at conception. But I think when I think about journalists allowing or editors publishing op-eds, what responsibility do we have to kind of make clear and use language that is accurate, you know, scientific without being cold. And I think that that's where I'm just really struggling. Because if you were to not know anything about how any of this works and read her essay, you would think, well, couldn't we have saved this child and delivered the baby, right? And and no, right? Ectopic pregnancies are not viable. Ectopic pregnancy is not at all similar to premature
1: delivery. Ectopic pregnancy is never going to result in a viable child Um, and this insistence of calling fetuses babies the way that it's framed is like in some ways I find it to be quite cruel because in many cases ectopic pregnancies are wanted and the the actual biological reality is is that it's not going to present a, a, a viable fetus that will will be able to survive outside of the womb and so there's just something that is I think very obviously coming from a point of grief in this op-ed, but it's really cruel about the reality of of the situation. And, And I think all of the stories that we've been seeing about what happens to women who are going through pregnancy have just made me feel like pregnancy is, it's just a awful, hard, grueling process. It's very violent in a lot of ways. And we don't talk about that. And now we're going to be forced to.
0: So one thing I would add to the fetus baby Dimension of it is that embryos, right? So the first several weeks of a pregnancy aren't even fetuses, <laughs> and I think we just keep moving the line, right? And so to call an ectopic pregnancy to use the word baby in that context to me is, is really it's staggering. I mean, it just I think it's confusing to people who maybe don't have the same grasp of the science, who don't have a female body, who don't have a uterus, who are not as familiar. You know, we've done this country has done a terrible job in terms of educating young people about how any of this works, right? And so if we knew more, we might know that there's, that the sort of the violence, the harm, the high drama of being pregnant, right, all of the risk to both the child's life and the mom's life, that this is a, a delicate balance. Um, when I think about what's, what really gets me, you know, where I can feel the the sadness and the Tears and and a clear understanding of what we've lost is when I think about women in in cases like these who already have children are pregnant again and something is going wrong and this and a pregnancy that might be wanted or might be accidental and I think about what does it mean if they come into a hospital now and say let's just say they have an ectopic pregnancy not going to survive it ruptures they bleed out right because a doctor was unwilling to, to offer the care you know that that she needs and that mom dies. And I just think, like, is that, is that really the desire here, that we want to leave kids that are currently here, currently born, without a mother, a partner, without a partner? I mean, is that the world that we're hoping for? And I think that that's really what breaks my heart, because it just feels like we are telling people in these cases who've, quote-unquote, in some ways, right, done everything right, not my belief right but done everything right that they too that their lives too might be put at risk because they don't have this this health care
1: I wanted to jump in with that and and to talk about something that i think that i've been noticing a lot in some of these other stories that i wanted that i've been just kind of like tracking in the times um about like you know the the younger generation of pro-life women about um there have been a couple of stories about crisis pregnancy centers and kind of the effort to uh, give support to women who have pregnancies that they choose to continue with, sometimes under misleading circumstances. That's its own situation. The media needs to figure out a different way to talk about this. There's this whole debate between uh, whether we use the phrase pro-life or anti-abortion. And I've been thinking about this a lot since the show, and I kind of have like a slightly new perspective on it that I want to try on for size and see what you think, Nicole. I do actually believe that many of the people that the Times is profiling here Are actually taking kind of more of a genuine pro-life stance. There still is, but there was a much more widely held political view that was pro-life back in the late '60s and early '70s. That the unifying positions that it took were being against the Vietnam War, against the death death penalty, and against abortion. And they were their value system was around life and around supporting that life. And so, like one of the debates that we get into all the time now is like, oh, people who are against abortion, they don't actually want To provide childcare, they don't want to provide welfare benefits, they don't want to actually provide any of the financial supports that are necessary for life. But I've been thinking about this particularly because of these time stories about these people who I do believe have this genuinely held religious belief that life begins at conception, that they have an obligation to support it. And what I think has happened is that I think that there has been this marriage between people who feel that way and the Republican Party who's willing to restrict abortion. And The Times keeps on putting out these stories about these people, many of them women, who are doing the labor of caring, who are um, you know trying to, to create this larger framework, and kind of pairing that with the um, Republican Party's entire machinery that it has created to restrict abortion access, to do what it's done on the Supreme Court, to do all these things really in an opportunistic way, I think a lot. Um, The Republican Party's support for uh, restricting abortion, I think, is very parallel to their desire to control women, to their support for small C conservative values and and family homes. And, you know, the idea that that the the woman's place is is at home with her children. When we get into this whole debate of like, is it pro-life or is it anti-abortion? It's like a category error in some ways, because I feel like there are people who are actually genuinely pro-life, but that is not the Republican Party who got us here. Those people are anti-abortion. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I mean, so critical to point out that in some ways these pro-lifers may have made it a, a true deal with the devil to get this done. right? Or maybe they didn't realize, but I think where my mind goes in all of this is it's— no coincidence that many of the states who had trigger laws, right, Mississippi, the the state in which we've, we got Dobbs um, in the first place that made it all the way up to the Supreme Court, have some of the worst maternal and infant health outcomes, right? Didn't expand Medicaid, child poverty through the roof, right? That there's no coincidence there. These are red states that don't have the same sort of pro-social welfare community ideology, right? That that the left does, and so I think for people who might be genuinely pro-life, who say I'm anti-death penalty, I want to, you know, make sure that every child has the things they need to survive once they're here. That they have to understand that that is not at all what Republicans want. That's not what they're looking for. Those aren't the conditions under which any of this is happening. And so I just think it's so. It's so it's so tricky and so unfortunate, um, so full of nuance, Um, and so maybe yeah, maybe the binary is not quite correct, and there's like a third category. I also sort of worry about the broader sort of evangelical bent to this, where there's this layered religious component, right, Um, that has so much more to that's more imbued with kind of power and the lack of autonomy and controlling women.
1: Something that I found in my reporting on the history of abortion is that like when there, are mo- when there is more room for more political identities, conversations feel less stuck. And so I think that I just wanted to point out like when the Times does this, they're not actually talking about the Republican belief in of abortion. And so I think that like recognizing this is a belief some people have and it's not the mainstream one that has gotten us here within that party. I think that that is helpful. That's our show this week.
0: The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth. Shannon Paulus is our editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio.
1: We'd love to hear from you. Email us at, the
0: waves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place.